Hi everybody, Eddie Leeway here and Little Miss Christine Samaru, episode 8. Say hello, my dear. Hello, everyone. How are we doing tonight, folks? I hope you're doing great. We're doing great. It's a rainy evening here in the tri-state area as we're recording episode 8. Ain't that great? <laughs> well, guess what I got for you today? What you got for me today? Today, we're going to interview, interview somebody from the Midwest. We're going to call him Ray or Rave, but she doesn't have to call him Johnson. <laughs> this is a pretty interesting story. It's right up my alley. <clears throat> you see, Ray um, was born into the mob. What does that mean? Well, what it means is he was born from a couple that was involved in organized crime. Okay. Based out of the outfit. This is what they call the mafia in Chicago. Ah. You see, like, uh, up in Boston, the mafia is called The Office. Okay. And in Chicago, in the mis Midwest, they call it The Outfit. Uh, in, in New York, it's Five Families, Mafia, or, or The Mob. You know, there's so many different names for it. Of course, the FBI calls it La Cosa Nostra because that is the Italian expression for this thing of ours. Mm -hmm. Now, Ray was adopted into another family that was tied into the Teamsters, which also is partially fixed into organized crime as well. Mm -hmm. And he's got an interesting story, being born abandoned, then adopted, mm -hmm. and then grew up in Milwaukee, involved in this life. And, you know, he got involved with the music scene and was a straight-edge kid. Then he got caught up with drugs and had a very turbulent life there, and found his way out because, you know, we're not here to just discuss the sad stories that are out there. We're here to discuss survival and success and perseverance and happiness despite the challenges and the human suffering that pretty much all of us endure in today's world. So we're going to get involved with that, and we're going to have uh, Ray back in just a few minutes. But again, I want to welcome everybody who's starting to hear us for the first time on Spotify. Welcome. Welcome to Spotify. Welcome. And, uh, you know, not only are we looking for more sponsors, but we need patrons. We need your help. We need your donations, so please go to patreon.com slash Eddie Sutton and help us out here. We're trying so hard to build on this podcast series and bring it to the masses worldwide, not just here in the States. We need your help. If you believe in what we're doing here, then step the fuck up and help us out. Come on, tell them. Tell them. Tell them. Tell them. <laughs> Step the fuck up and help us out. As there you can you see, we're keeping consistent. Yeah, we have been steady. 
Yes. We're on episode eight, man. Ain't this great? You know, as corny as that rhyme that is. That rhymes. <laughs> we're, we're, we're putting out the best we can here, and and we're really doing the best we can. Uh, sit tight, because I've got a very, very powerful interview coming up soon with Danny Diablo, Lord Ezak. But right now, we're going to tell Ray's story. We'll be right back. Okay, we got Ray on the line. Ray, say hello to everybody. Hey, how we doing, everybody? It's a pleasure to have you on the show this evening. I want you to kind of, like, start things off. Give us an idea of when you were born and okay. have, have uh, a, a bit of a starting dialogue to explain uh, your parents and the things that happened. Don't we all? Um, but, uh, right, right. So I was born in 1987. I was born in the south side of Chicago, Harvey, Illinois. Um, yeah, I was born to uh, Italian parents, you know. Um, my dad, he's, uh, you know, local, he was old Italian, local mobbed up dude. My mom, she was, uh, you know, working for him and stuff. And, uh, yeah, you know, they were, they were drug addicts. And, you know, that's, that's how that all started. So, uh, well, you, you, know, you know. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry to cut. I mean, you know, I, I started off there, you know, um, you know, the, the, they abandoned us in a car. It was me, uh, a couple of my brothers, and that, that's where it all started. I don't, I don't remember much of that, you know, because I was so young. I was like a year and a half old, but uh, yeah, the state ended up taking us away for, for neglect because, uh, you know, obviously they had drug and alcohol problems and, uh, you know, the whole abandonment in the car on the south side of Chicago for a couple of days till the cops found us isn't, uh, <laughs> isn't primarily the best way to raise a child, you know what I mean? No, without question. And, and, and it's kind of good that you were at such an infant age that you don't remember right. this and that it isn't well, really that much part of your trauma. Because, uh, you know, I didn't find out till later years, till I was, like, a little bit older. Like, I, I think I was, like, 17, like, how I was actually found. And I remember, you know, I, I had severe ADHD, so I was always seeing psychiatrists and psychologists. And I remember one time the psychologist asking me, like, do you have any strange dreams? And ever since I was a little kid, I remember having this, like, reoccurring dream where I'm sitting in the back seat in the car seat, and there's another car seat to the right of me and one on the front seat. And, like, I'm looking out at, like, the front of the windshield, and I'm watching the sunset. And there's, like, I remember a dumpster to the right of me, like a green dumpster or whatever, and the sun setting right above a building in front of where the car was parked. And the psychologist goes, holy shit. She's like, do you know how you were found? And I was like, no. She's like, that's exactly how you were found. So I'm wondering if that's, like, like my first memory ever. You know what I mean? It's possible. <laughs> do you have... Do you have any memory of your 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 parents? Not not a single one. Not a single one. Did you meet them later on? No, I didn't. My uh, my my parents had adopted me. My real parents now. You know, that's how I always consider them. I was year and a half, so I don't know anything else. So these are my parents now. No, but they uh, they I guess they took me and my brother to go visit them. But my mom and dad were both locked up in jail, and I remember. I remember one little piece of that because my mom used to, you know, I had dress shoes on and my dress shoes were actually 
too big for my feet, so I learned to stuff cotton in the front of my shoes so that my shoes wouldn't bend and all that, and it was a little more comfortable. And I remember they had to search the shoes, and they found the cotton, and they thought there were drugs in it and stuff that we were smuggling in. I remember that. That's <laughs> funny. I don't, I don't remember my parents. I don't remember what they looked like, anything like that. You know what I mean? That, that might be better. In, in many ways, because that is a ch very, very challenging way to start life. Now, it's funny, because, you know, uh, in the intro, I was talking about how Chicago, the mob is, no the Italian mob is known as the outfit. The outfit, yes. They were, they, they were linked in with, like, Chicago and Detroit, or, uh, New York and Detroit and stuff like that, but they were basically their own entity. In Chicago, they, 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 you know, everybody responded to somebody, but Chicago kind of had its own thing going, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and there's not much discussed about the drug life through the outfit, no. but let's not be fooled. Of course, the outfit controlled a lot of the drugs in that city, just like anywhere else. Somebody had their hand oh, in it. I'm sure. I'm sure, you know, just like any other major city in the United States, somebody who's in charge of that, you know, they, which is normally, you know, mafias or big, big biker gangs or something, you know what I mean? Normally they're the ones that, uh, you know, from, from what I've read. <laughs> wink, wink. You know, they're, they're the ones, right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just crazy, you know, and then it's like, you know, my brother, he was born, he's, he's a year, he's exactly a year and a month younger than me. And he was actually born with cocaine in his system. So it's like, you know, between me and my brother being born like that, you know, we, uh, we were, uh, you know, bound to, to, to get some drug abuse in our, in our DNA, basically, I guess you would say. Well, well, before we go there, let's talk about um, where you went after being found and right. given the opportunity to be adopted into a, a, a new and better family. Give us, give us right. a bit of a color there. Well, so, um, you know, the state took us away. Like I said, I was so young, I don't really remember it. But I, I, my parents now, I always remember them being, like, my, my real parents. You know, they raised me, and I don't care who you are. No, it's, it's not where you came from, who's, you know, whose womb you came out of. It's, it's who raised you and who gave you a roof over your head. I agree. Everything about life. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Like, that's, that's kind of how I've seen it, you know. And, uh... It's like, so, you know, my parents now, I, I don't remember, you know, anything about anybody else. So, like, they took me in, and they were always very good. My dad was very, like, adamant, you know. He, he also, you know, he was he was working in a laborer's union, and he was, you know, working to, he had a lot of union stuff going on with him. And they're, they're an Italian family as well, which is hilarious. So I, I went from one Italian family into another, <laughs> you know, which is, like, sometimes unheard of, you know. Which surprisingly, but I, I think I think it's it's beneficial that you you know you you kind of fell into this opportunity with another Italian family. It's part of your heritage and everything right. else. I think it helped with giving you uh, some groundings, some stability. What type of union work right. did uh, you, your your adopted father uh, involve himself with? Uh, he was more of an up top uh, business. Uh, I don't know if he was business agent or something like that, but he was he was more of like the up top guys, the business guys. He wasn't low level, you know, street union worker or anything like that, you know. 
Got you. He was uh, like my my dad's brother. He was the union president at the time too, and they had a lot of things going on. You know, like the movie the movie Casino back in the day. Like he was involved with a lot of that stuff that took place going on with the with the Las Vegas Casino movie, like with the the, the pension loans and you know a lot of the wise guys that were in that movie that you know went after Joe Pesci's character. You know, a lot of them worked for my uncle's union. Well, you know, uh, what city are we talking about here? <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> well, between both Chicago and Milwaukee, not only right. did you have a lot of the key figures, like, uh, for example, Jackie Cerrone was pretty right. much the powerful man within those 80s years, but you also had the Balistrieri family based out of Milwaukee, and yeah. a lot of people don't realize, but if you read the book Casino by Nicholas Pileggi, Balistrieri had a lot of power and, and a foothold into the Argent Corporation that right. did establish that one main casino that Lefty Rosenthal was involved with and eventually... Tony the Ants Belotro took over as the enforcer in 71 for Las Vegas. Exactly, exactly. Detroit had a hand in that too. Kansas City had a hand in that as well. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a major Midwest operation, I think, more than just uh, just in Chicago or in Milwaukee. They, 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 they had like, like a commission, basically, of friends, you know. Milwaukee's always been kind of Chicago's little brother, you know, in that aspect. True, but they always had a seat in the commission. You know, exactly. Balistrieri family, you know, was a very smart family. They weren't just your regular knuckle-drag gangsters in the LCN. You know, Frank's son was an attorney, or even both sons were attorneys. He made sure that they had higher educations and became legitimate men, even though they were re representing their dad in a court of law. nowadays, you know what I mean, with, with like, uh, families that, uh, you know, put people into, into, like, you know, positions with lawyers or politics or anything like that, so, you know, it's, there's still, still a little string of that going on. Well, you know, Italians always had a thing where you uh, carried an area yourself of family and legitimacy, and whatever you were doing, you put shade on it, you did it within the shadows. You know, like, my father was a film editor, but at the same time, he helped establish the modern-day chop shop out of New York with an auto tow truck in business, you know? So, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy world, man. Very. So, so it's like it's like you know that, that mentality stuck in with me. Now you know I'm not going around doing illegal stuff, but I kind of understood like you know that that life. I understood the reasons why. I understood you know a lot of them were family men, like like you know to understand. You know it, it was more about just you know providing for their family. When Italians first came over here, you know that there was blacks and Italians and Irish, and they were all fighting for the same piece of pie. You know what I mean? Very much. Very much. So it, it, 
it's always when you got that element, you always got a criminal element that's going to come up for protecting your neighborhood, keeping one, 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 you know, one race. It's not a racist thing, but like you know, the Italians would stick with the Italians, the Puerto Ricans with the Puerto Ricans, the Irish with the Irish, the Germans with the Germans. You know what I mean? For the longest time, things only have started to change over, I guess, the last 30, 40 years, because right. America's become such a melting pot. And, you know, couples right. intermingle and they raise babies with different uh, nationalities as well as different races and creeds. You know, everybody was a hardworking individual, but I guess when you're raising a family and you understand this today, um, that, right. you know, there's never enough for your children or there's never enough. So it's not just the hard work and the legit pay that you make. You're trying to make a buck or two on the side to keep exactly. afloat and to have the things that you want. Well, you, you kind of have to because, I mean, everywhere you turn, you're being taxed and somebody's got their hand in your pocket, everything. It, it, like I said, the, the honest buck was so hard. You make one dollar, you, you take home ten cents. And you put in, you know, twelve hours worth of work. Yep. You know, it just it just didn't work. You couldn't provide for your family. You couldn't put food on the table. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't go out. You couldn't put gas in your car. It was you couldn't even buy a car. True. True. Now, if if I understand from our earlier discussion, your adopted dad was involved in the Teamsters as well as his brothers right. and everything else. You know what I mean? They had, they had like, like so the teamsters were involved in the major loans and stuff like that. The laborers union guys had like a lot of, you know, the street muscle tufts and stuff like, uh, like uh, I can't remember his name now, but one of the guys that was portrayed in Casino that was, was, was his name, Frankie, I think it was, uh, Joe Pesci's right-hand man that was always with him. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly who that was in real life, but um, Pesci played Tony the Ant Spilotro. Yeah, well, he was. That, uh, that guy was just a dick. He deserved what he had I bet. I bet. The guy that was really scary that, you know, Pesci's character, Tony the Ant, had an answer to was Joey the Clown Lobardo. Right. And we that man was no clown. clown. While they talked. For one specific event, we were at a VFW in, in Addison, and uh, we were outside playing, and Joey the Clown's grandson bit my brother, and I just lost it. I beat the shit out of the guy. <laughs> and, you know, I was like six, seven years old, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, the kids laying there bleeding, crying, and Joey the Clown comes out, my dad comes out, and all these people, and, 
And they go up to my dad, and they're like, well, what happened? And my dad literally told them, this was his exact words. He said, boys will be boys. <laughs> is what it is, and yeah. And they were probably pretty amused to see you guys scrapping like that and everything right, else. Right. You know, because. You know, it's, it's little kid antics and stuff. You know, nobody got seriously injured. You know no, I mean? it's trial and error, man. It's all based on growing up. It's like the same shit that happens in a schoolyard, but it just so happens it's around these knockaround guys in, in this right. OC world. You know what I mean? But is right. it any different yeah. from anywhere else? No. Well, it's different for today's kids. You know, today's kids, these millennials are growing up snowflakes, you know. It gets a little too hot out, they melt, let alone trying to go through a traumatic experience. So, so tell me about, like, you know, your teenage years and getting involved in, you know, the things that you gravitated towards into your young adulthood. Well, it's like, you know, I don't know if, like, I, off the top of my head, I always had this, like, longing to know who my real, my real parents were, you know what I mean? Sure. I recently, it's, it's been about six, seven months, you know, with the beauty of Facebook. You know, I typed in my original dad's name, blah, blah, blah. I came up with family members related to on, on Google. And then I put it in, you know, and I, I ended up finding my dad, but he didn't want to speak to me. So I talked to, I talked to his brother, who was my biological uncle. Sure. And he was like, he had a tear in his eye and everything like that. Like, you know, he's like, I always wondered what happened to you guys. And I showed pictures of my Italian family now and everything. He's like, you know, I, it literally brought a tear to his eye because he's like, I'm so glad that you know, you got adopted into a family that's, you know, Italian and keeps the culture and everything alive. And I still talk to them every once in a while, you know. That's I'm good. Talk and stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of that, like, wanting to know who my dad was my whole life was, like, you know, part of, like, a sense of belonging and looking for, like, groups of people to hang out with. And, you know, you get caught up with, like, you know, you got your street gangs and your, your crews and your, you know, your tops and your hoods and stuff. And I, I think a lot of that stems from from that, that wanting to belong, that wanting, you know, you're searching for something, you know, you want that family life, even though I had it, I still felt like a part of me was missing, and maybe I was trying to fill that void through that, you know what I mean? A lot of people do, a lot of people do, ask pretty much any kid who's in a set, a clique, or crew, or gang, you know, they're missing something at home, and they're, they're, they're seeking the truth. It may not be through religion or love or something else, but it, it's so easy to fall into that trap. Right. It, it really is. And, and you know, I, my, my, life, my family life, my adoptive family life, was great. You know, I had a roof over my head. My parents cooked. You know, they had a, a garden. You know, everything came out of the garden. They cooked from scratch meals. I, you know, we never went out to restaurants too much. You know, I had a good upbringing. My dad taught me a lot of stuff, but there was always that, like, that little thing just nipping at my son subconscious that I was just, like, missing. You know what I mean? Sure. Where Where did I come from? You know? Right. Exactly. My identity, basically. Your whole identity. And, and, and a lot of people can get really fucked up over that and, and lost, you know what I mean? Exactly. 
Now, now I'd like to for you to talk about really like you know um, we have a good idea of your background. You had a you had a great family that helped support and raise you. Um, tell us about your young adulthood. What did what did you gravitate towards, and and what challenges did you face? like one of the biggest things that we had our own little crew of BMX riders and you know we we were like I, I was straight edge up until I was like 17 almost 18 years old which is ironic for the whole situation I came from you know what I mean like uh, it, it's, it's just crazy and you know we, we always did that we were going out you know my parents would go to sleep at 8 p.m. and we'd run around you know move cars do stuff like that but then like as I started getting older, there started to be like a little bit more of a criminal element to everything. It started to be like, you know, you had friends breaking into places and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, it starts as mischief, but then it really crosses over the shit. Exactly, exactly, you know? Well, you stay close with the people you know. That's where the loyalty is. You grow to trust each other. You build that bond, and you wanna, you wanna test the waters and you want to push yourselves to certain limits. It's a daredevil type of thing, you know? It really is. <laughs> you know, because we don't have a conscience when we're young. We could be very easily cruel, brutal, right. and we could do things that we would not do as adults with a conscience. Exactly. You're 100% you're correct. So, so give us an idea of what turns you. I guess uh, you mentioned straight edge. So obviously you found hardcore, and you. I you found that was it. Hard, hardcore was one of the biggest things. It was. It was like you know, growing up in the BMX scene, hardcore kind of intertwined. Hardcore punk rock. You know, I started growing up. You know, I started listening to like you know, Rancid, Pennywise, AFI. And then I started getting into, like, the heavier elements of it. I started getting into, like, Agnostic Front, Sick of It All, Madball, Leeway, obviously. You know what I mean? Like, I started getting into that, and then, I, you know, going to the shows started getting more violent and more, like, darker, depending on, like, the, the, the types of shows and the bands I was going to see. And that's when it really started getting getting crazy. That's when it started taking off a little bit. So what were you doing? Like, I guess you broke edge, you started drinking and partying, or? Well, I started, uh, I, I, the whole thing that got me into the drugs was a girl. I, I never had a girlfriend. I was so you know, intertwined with my friends and riding BMX. I mean, we were at the skate park every day. There was mischief involved at the skate park, too. I remember, you know, they shut down. There was uh, the Cabrini Cream housing projects in Chicago. And, you know, we moved up north, almost close to the Wisconsin-Illinois border. Okay. And, you know, out here, it's it's big and country. You know, we live on two acres of, you know, land. My parents had a 50-by-50-foot 50 50 garden, you know, and there's, like, the local skate park in town. But behind the skate park, they had, like, the, the housing projects. So when they tore down Cabrini Green, they relocated a lot of those those gang members and people that lived in those, those Section 8 housing, you know. They moved them to Skokie, they moved them to Antioch, they moved them to Round Lake, they started moving them to all these towns all around. Yeah, getting pushed out. One of the main parts, exactly, was right behind the skate park. And I remember one of the first times that actually banded us together as like a crew 
was we were riding at the skate park and the gangbangers started coming to the skate park and trying to tax us to ride the skate park. <laughs> and we weren't having it. And we were like, you know, we rode DMS every day. So we, all of us were like, you know, our upper bodies, our legs, our arms, we were all pretty, pretty jacked, strong dudes. We beat the fuck out of all those guys. They never came back and tried to tax us again. Oh, good for that, man, because that's, that's normally the challenge that, that comes to a lot of things. You know, you you know, it, it may sound funny, but the BMX park and the skate park was your turf. You were fighting for your yeah, turf. It was. You it know, was. we had a hand in building it. You know, we designed it. You know, my buddy's mom was on the on the village board or whatever, and so she got like the, the specs for the skate park directly from BMX riders and skateboarders. So we basically that was that was our park. You know, interesting. So, yeah, and then we, we were also still straight edge at the time. So, you know, the gangbangers, there's a pavilion right next to the skate park, and the gangbangers would peddle all their drugs there and everything. And I remember the cops, the cops were on the take. You would see the cops show up, packages go back and forth from the gangbangers in brown bags to the cops and stuff, but then the cops would come harass us, you know, after we started beating them up. They stayed in the pavilion, we stayed in the skate park, and then, you know, after we beat their ass, they didn't, they didn't you know, we didn't cross paths anymore. But the cops would come harass us all the time, you know, give us helmet tickets. If we weren't wearing our helmets in the skate park, they would take our bikes. And we would spend, you know, two, three thousand dollars building our BMX bikes. How we got the money out of it, remember, you know. <laughs> well, we don't need to explain that, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. But it, it, check out the irony of that. You guys are doing something wholesome. And the cops are giving you a hard time because their bread's getting buttered by these fucking mamalukes fucking playing games. Yeah, it, we couldn't make any sense of it. I mean, we would tell the cops, and that's kind of where, like, our hatred for the police started to come into play. You know what I mean? Like, Only makes sense. They're getting exercise. We're the ones, you know, straight edge. We're the ones, you know, having a good time. The sun would set, the gangbangers would be in the pavilion, and they would be all right. The cops would come kick us out. If we didn't get kicked out, they'd confiscate our bikes, and then we'd have to pay $200 or call our parents, and they'd have to pay the money to go get our bikes and skateboards back. Oh, what a load of shit. And then you wonder why kids lead astray. Right, exactly. I mean, that right there was like a complete turning point to just, just us to, like, you know, like oppositional defiance, I guess you would say. <laughs> well, you kind of give up, you grow up, so you're not, you're not as much interested in your sport and hobby. You find girls, they become yep. your new obsession. It's only natural. You're a growing boy, healthy, and everything like that. So let's 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 go there. Let's let's discuss that. Well, I met my first girlfriend. And uh, I was 17, I just got out of high school, 17, turning 18, never touched a drug, never anything, and she smoked pot. I mean, still to this day, I smoke pot. I don't do anything else anymore, but, you know, pot's always been kind of like my anxiety mess. Sure. But, you know, I smoked pot with her, and, and I, I will, to a certain extent, say, you know, it might have been a gateway drug for me. Um, because the second I got high, then I was wondering, I was like, wow, what else? What else is there? What do these other drugs do? You know, <laughs> how far can I push this? <laughs> well, I, I I do believe, just to cut you off for a second, I do believe marijuana and alcohol are gateway drugs. They're only natural to be the first things that kids experiment with. But then after they, yes, 
And it's only a matter of time where a lot of them want to try to experience maybe tripping out or, or doing what's in the medicine cabinet because it's medicine cabinet addiction that really is the big issue today, not so much the streets. Yep. These kids get addicted on, yeah, it's pharmaceutical drugs that become the first addiction. They go to the streets after they can't afford that. But go ahead. I'm I'm sorry to cut you off. That's what leads leads them into the streets. I mean, you want to talk about drug dealers. The government just doesn't like competition. They, they, They take everything off the streets, put it in their cells, call it legal, tax it, and then there you go. I mean, I had doctors, you know, as well, later on in my life when I started getting 20, 21, started getting into more, like, of the criminal underbelly side of things. I had doctors, you know, that would sell me Ziploc bags of, of Vicodin, Ziploc bags of Oxycontins and stuff. I mean, these were legitimate doctors that were running these farm. I can't remember what the term is. Farm Pill mill. Pill mill, that's what it is. And then they were running this. And then, like, once I start seeing that, I'm like, holy shit, like, the, the, the world. It's like, I almost wish I was blind, you know, because then once you start opening your eyes to that world, you can't go back. And then it's hard to trust anything anybody says. True. True. It, 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 was, it was messed up, you know. And then I, I met that girl, smoked pot, and then the next thing from that was, you know, alcohol. I remember getting drunk the first time. You know, and, and I was trying to impress her. I'm like, yeah, I drink, yeah, I do this, yeah, I do that, you know, and, uh, I remember we drank, I was just chugging Bacardi out of a bottle and drinking a 40, those cowboy Coronas in the bottles or whatever. And I <laughs> so, so sick. But I was doing it to impress her, like, sure, you know, I'm hardcore, I can do this, you know? Yeah. And I remember just throwing up like crazy, coming home to my parents' house, I was living at my parents at the time. And my mom asked me, uh, you know, what's wrong with you? I told her I ate bad Taco Bell or something like that, and I had food poisoning for two days. <laughs> Did she believe it? Yeah, but it's almost natural for a kid to come home drunk. I think I think it's it's almost like a crossroads. Every family has to come to a realization with eventually their their child's gonna come home after a night of a little bit of debauchery, whether it's coming home stoned like Cheech and Chong or or right. drunk after throwing up all over their shoes. You know? Right. Well see like an Americanized family, that was that was relatively normal because a lot of those families, you know, like like a lot of my American friends, they you know I'm American, but a lot of my friends that you know didn't grow up in like 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 a, an immigrant family, you know, their their parents went to college, they were in fraternities, they were partying and stuff, and you know it's kind of like a generational thing that keeps going around and around. For them, it was normalized. My parents are, oh, when they adopted us, my dad was in his 40s. My dad's, you know, 75, 76 years old right now. Sure. My mom's right around there, you know. And to them, they were they were old school. You know, my dad, even though he was involved in whatever he was involved in, he didn't, you know, drugs was a big no-go. Drinking was a big no-go. He makes his wine, you know. I, I grew up making wine in the basement with him and stuff. You know, we'd peel off all the grapes and put in the press, I mean, the whole nine yards. No, definitely, because you know, when you when you look at people that are involved in the in the union life or, or other forms of organized crime, anybody who does drugs is weak and and they're susceptible to 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 flipping, become an informant or ratting everybody out. So that was something that was an extreme no-no that really is a big problem from organized crime today because everybody's rolling over like a fucking log in a toilet. 
you know. Everybody does. The government made it too easy. The government gave them that option. The second somebody sees they like in prison for 20 years and then I'm back out and I can at least enjoy the last half of my life, last quarter of my life, people take that. Yeah, well, you're almost guaranteed you'll only do five years or less as long as you come clean and you roll over on as many people as possible. Exactly, which, you know, my dad was always very adamant. My dad, you know, when he had us, you know, he was still involved for probably the first, you know, 10 years of my life. But after that, he, he had a couple of banquet halls. He had one actually in New York. He had another one in Florida, a, a restaurant, and then he had another one in Chicago. And uh, when he, when, when like, when he started getting getting older, he's like, I got to get out of this, you know, he's at that age, he was able to retire because he was that, you know, he was up, he was up there. Yeah. So, but he, he always says, even to this day, he's like, you know, he's like, if it wasn't for you guys, I'd be a multimillionaire right now, you know, which I, you know, I, I still believe, he's always got cash, so, you know, I, I'm pretty sure there's coffee cans in the backyard somewhere. But <laughs> That's funny. He, 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 sold it, he sold his part out. I remember, you know, in like 13, 14 years old, going meeting with these guys in Chicago, and I don't even know who these people are, you know? Like, I still didn't understand at that time. It wasn't until I was about 17, 18 years old, my dad started telling me things, and like, started showing me pictures, and then I started looking up, the internet came about, so information started being, you know, everywhere. And, uh, you know, one of his banquet halls, the one on the south side of Chicago, he, uh, he had it, and he had a, he had a family member that was uh, in the FBI or something like that. I can't remember if he was like a detective or something, but he warned my dad, and he said, you know, look, this banquet hall is about to get rolled. He's like, you need to get out of it. You need to tell your partners they need to get out of it, shut it down, and get out. Well, my dad goes to his partners, and he's like, listen, we need to, we need to get out. He relate the story, and they're like, oh, you're being paranoid. Here, there's nothing like that coming. Here's the, and he's like, all right, fine. Tell me my piece out, and I'm out. So he sold him his piece out, and he got out. Well, I don't know how long it was after, but they all got raided. And those idiots, they had, like, the gambling rings in the basement and stuff. My dad was never involved in drugs. The, 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 you know, the gambling part of it was different. You know, that was acceptable socially, politically, and, you know, you could get away with it. But uh, they left all their black books inside the drop ceiling in the basement, and the FBI found all that, and they threw a lot of the guys in prison. Some of them, like a couple of the guys, they, they got out not too long ago. They did like 14, 18 years in prison. Well, you find the books, then it's a racketeering case. It's definitely a RICO. But, you know, for most guys that, like, take book or involve themselves in gambling, normally the beef... And, and and a conviction is really only, you know, 24 months at best. It's really like, a, you know, it's, it's not as bad as the other things you could get involved with, like getting busted for loan sharking or hurting somebody or, you know, the, the, the biggest beef of all, murder, homicide, or even conspiracy to murder. You know, that's when the RICO charges are 20 years plus, and that's where they really force people into rollover. You know, but if you're involved with gambling, uh, I, I know a lot of people here in New York, like a couple of friends whose dads were bookies. You know, it, it, it's part for the course. You know, you get pinched once in a while, you got to go away for 8 to 12 months, and then you come back out and you start all over again. Yep, that's, that's exactly how it was. I remember I was like, I was probably 18 years old, and my dad, one of the guys got out of prison, and my dad took me to this coffee shop in Chicago, and uh, he's like, hey, we're going to go over here and talk to a guy. This is when he started letting me know a little bit, and I just kind of understood just a tiny bit, not not the full extent, but just a tiny bit, 
And he's like, this guy, he was my partner, blah, blah, blah. He had to go talk to him and square away some beef because the guy thought my dad rolled on him, which wasn't true whatsoever. So they talked, and that's actually how my dad found out I, I smoked cigarettes. Because his buddy was like, hey, you got a cigarette? My dad's like, no, I don't have any. My dad doesn't smoke. You know, he doesn't he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't do drugs. You know, and uh, he looks at me, for some reason he looks at me and he's like, hey, you got a cigarette? And I was like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I got a cigarette. <laughs> you know, I gave it to this guy and the guy gave me like a hundred bucks. He handed me a hundred dollar bill. I'm like, my dad said, just take it. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, that's how he found out I smoked cigarettes. And how old were you then? I, I, was, I think I was 17, 18. It was right after I started, you know, getting into like drugs and stuff like that. So probably around 18. Well, when did drugs started getting in the way of your life? When did it started bringing a downfall in, and when did you need to wake up from that? Man, I, I started then, and I literally did not stop using drugs till about eight months ago. I'm sober eight months now, which is awesome. You know, I. Uh, but it's a fuck eighteen. Aside from your marijuana prescription, you. I have to correct you there. Right, it started with the marijuana, and then it went to, like like you said, with the pharmaceutical. Now I'm at home, you know, my dad's got sleeping pills, my dad's got anti-anxiety medicine, my dad's got, you know, when I started raising, I would just start taking, I, I don't even know what things were, I was just, you know, taking anything, and I was getting really fucked up. I mean, I remember I took the sleeping pills once, and uh, it was like, I started getting auditory hallucinations, and I remember just sitting there, and like, the band blade made it sound like, like there was tiny people living in the room and stuff, and like, I remember doing some pretty, I can imagine if you're not taking that stuff because you're having certain mental health or uh, brain chemistry symptoms, I can only imagine what some of those drugs can do to somebody. I mean, normally people are looking for Oxys, Roxys, and Xanax, and things like that, or Ritalin and Adderall. Those are normally the drugs that people normally gravitate towards. Right. When did you realize enough was enough? When 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 did you realize enough was enough? I, I've gone so so you know throughout my life from 18 to 25, I was in and out of jail, man. I, I did two and a half years of my life incarcerated, you know, but I did them in six seven month increments each time, you know. So what is that four or four and a half times, something like that. So a lot of county uh, time. Did you? you that's, a lot of county time. Luckily, I had you know my family has a great lawyer, you know, so I always with the songs. I started fighting. You know, ever since I was a little kid, I mean, I would get picked on in school like crazy, dude, like crazy. Yeah. And, you know, the, the people that were picking on me, their parents were on the school board. The one dude that was always picking on me and pushing me and beating me up, his dad was the president of the, of the PTO or whatever the, the school board was. You know, so it's like whenever I would go to the teachers, they would never do anything. My dad got heavily involved, and it was like for him, I was able to make it through school. But it got to a point where my dad just said, you know what? You need to start defending yourself. And I started just beating the fuck out of everybody, you know? Sure. And up and up, my back gets put up against the wall. I couldn't take it anymore. We had a privileged family in Astoria named the Valones, and they were pretty pop. They were pretty powerful in, in city politics for a long time. The son, you know, eventually became a politician, too, and he really thought of himself because of his dad. But, you know, after he got his ass handed a couple of times, they shut down Astoria Park, where everybody used to hang out and party, where all the keggers were and everything else. You know, it definitely shut that lifestyle off. Yeah. Park in the movie The Outsiders. 
you know, you, you had a lot of challenges facing you. And yes, it could have been easy where, you know, the, the experience of incarceration could have led you into a deeper and darker path. What made you wake up? I was fighting my whole life. I, I mean, I always fought. I never took shit from nobody, you know. And uh, it started getting worse when I turned 21 and I started getting into the bar scene, you know. And then the crew that we brought from the skate park, I mean, it was a solid 20, 25 of us, you know, that ran our town. Like, we, we were at every, we go out every Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I mean, we go out a couple times during the week and we had several bars that were basically like our bars, you know what I mean? Got it. And, it's like, you know, people, they didn't come correct, we adjusted that, you know, and like, a lot of times the problem was, is like, I was very notorious for fighting, so whenever, like, somebody got really badly beaten, there's there's a lot of spectators, my name would always get dropped, I'd get a warrant, they'd, they'd come kick me up, the U.S. Marshals busted into my house and grabbed me a bunch of times, and, you know, they, my name would get dropped, I would get charged with felonies, I mean, pretty bad, I, I remember beating up man breaking jaws and everything so I, I always got charged with felonies but luckily i always had a good lawyer that would get him reduced to misdemeanors get me out on county time and that's it so it's like you know i, I never had to sit in there for, for i never had to go down to prison let's put it that way well it, it it's definitely you know it, it's this rite of passage for a lot of young men to to feel strong and feel the strength of numbers and, and, you know, there's something romantic and glorious about having that crew of guys feeling like you're running the town and everything else. But it, it's also a very fine line that can lead into a much darker path, you know. It, it does, and then, like, you know, the older I was getting, the more darker, you know, it's like some people were rolling with me, started getting into gangs, some of them started getting into bikers, some of them, and it's like we started getting, like, you know, those types of people started taking a shine to us, you know, and, like, our reputation was built pretty good, you know, and, like, people were, like, the stories, we'd go to some of these bike club houses, and the stories that they're telling in there are stories from us. It's you know, the farm system. Good. You know, you're the minor leagues. You guys are showing that you're capable with your hands, you're loyal to each other, and you can handle these situations as a team. You know, it's definitely biker gangs and, and OC groups that want to pick you up and want to cultivate that and make you into something darker and deeper, you know? Yeah, it's awkward. 
Yeah, I, you know, like my distant relatives too, yeah, they're, they're part of blood, but you don't really have any tangible relationship with them, so it's hard to relate, even though it's supposed to be yeah. relationships, you know what I mean, or relatives. Well, how can I trust you if I've, if I've never done dirt with you? If you've never been there, you've never been through my best times, you've never been through my worst times. Like, I, I can't trust you because of that. Now, my friends, my like, everybody to this day, I still call them my brothers. They're all my brothers. I guess that's why everybody was my uncle when I was a kid. But it's like these were my brothers, you know? It's, it's like still to this day, I guess. That's, that's it. That's my family. Yeah, and it, you know, it could, you could have easily fell into those traps and everything. You know, like like what really made you wake up from all of that? You know, I was going to, like, the first time I went to jail, man, but, you know, when, when you go to jail, there's this big gangs out here in the Chicago land here, and you've got some TV, you've got some sports, you've got some four-quarter officers. I mean, you've got all the major gangs all around here. So when I'm going in with one, I'm going in with a street-fighting reputation. So that's already coming in. Two, I'm a pretty decent-sized guy, so a lot of people, a lot of gangbangers and stuff, they're just shooters. You know, they're not, they're not fighters, so they, they think twice about actually trying to fight you. Or they because team they up they, on you. Yeah, they team up. But still, me and my, me and my, like, me and my blood brother, I mean, we've taken on people, you know, five, six, seven people at a time and just beat the fuck out of them. So even if you put three on me, I'm still going to have a solid chance of whooping your ass. You know, it's crazy how so many of the hardcore dudes are, 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 are like this. You know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's odd. It's crazy. It's funny because a lot of the stories are, are similar to different, different areas of the country. Yeah, you may come from the city or you may come from the burbs or you may come from the right. sticks, but a, a lot of this shit is, is pretty much one and the same, you know? Right. I had the reputation, I knew people in the city, I knew how to carry myself with city-type people, you know, the city gangbangers and stuff, but then when we moved out to the sticks, like, people, like, don't understand, there's, like, a lot of rednecks out here, but these dudes are still tough, too, these are farm guys, you have dudes, you know, chicken bales of hay that weigh 30, 40 pounds every day, all day, these are tough motherfuckers out here, too, just at a different time. Yeah, they're milk and corn-fed, they're tall and, and thick. Exactly. And, you know, it's like, you know, getting both of that, I'm able to adjust to wherever I go. I'm able to adjust to whatever mentality I have to be in in that situation. So going to jail, you know, you go in with that. People, like, I automatically, it was like an automatic respect. I never had a problem. I would sit at the table with the heads of the, the four-corner hustlers that got rebuilt, you know. And it's like, I would sit with all the old-timers because I was always quiet, raised by the Italians, you know. So when I'm sitting with the old four-corner hustlers that were rebuilt, we just sit, play cards. There wasn't a lot of whooping. There wasn't a lot of, man, motherfucker, this and that. All the young kids who were coming in there, they were all doing that, you know, but it wasn't respected. Yeah, when, know, the old-timers would use them to do the dirt and stuff, but at the same time, it's like, that's not, that's not how we did it. It was business compared to just, you know, street cred. Yeah, no, I get it. A lot of the years when I was fucking up, uh, Rikers Island was notorious for slashings, and this is like the late 80s into the early 90s, and, you know, um, there was an average of a slashing a day throughout the island, and it was just not a lifestyle that I was interested in dealing with, you know, uh, I was more concerned about trying to find my way to get out. You know, as as much as I have a record and and, and have a very bad past, you know, I was lucky to not do state time. All my time was relatively right. county time myself. That's same here. But then you got county, Chicago's county, I mean, is worse than prison. 
I mean, the guards aren't anywhere. They, they put you in a thing called the bubble, you know what I mean? So it's like, you, you, there's no control. It's the gangs run everything. Cook County, it's, correct? It's, it's, yeah, Cook County. I only did one time in there. My, the rest of my time was in Lake County, which is, it was a little bit, little bit more relaxed, but still, it's like the, the gangs still run it. You know, it, it, that's how it is. So, it's a, so you know, give me an idea of what gave you the clarity that this was not where you wanted to be and, and, and that... When I first started going to jail, I was also, you know, I started going in there and I'm like, wow, I'm sitting with these heads of the gangs and stuff. I'm sitting, so, like, the first time I went in, I made connections. So then when I come out, that just made it ten times worse in the outside world. And then I, you know, get involved in stuff, meeting people, get, I, I could get whatever the hell you wanted, I could get it, you know? And then, you know, then you obviously get caught up, and I went back in again. Then I'd meet a whole, that was my second time. And, you know, the second time, I'm like, all right, here we go again. I, a lot of the people are still in there. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you're, you're cool, it's still cool. I, by the fourth time, man, I was just like, you know what, this is fucking getting old, man. I'm like, this is, you know fifth time but you know the last time the last seven months i did was in 2015 and uh i actually i uh i, I fucked up a dude pretty bad it was it was, it was actually it was, it was bad because uh the whole the whole power went out in my town right and uh, i went to the bar i was blackout fucking drunk high on below you know i don't know what was going on and the power went out in the town i couldn't get in the bar to take pits so i went into the alley and i was taking a piss well the owner of the bar, his dad was also the owner. He was like a 65-year-old guy. He grabbed me by the shoulder. I turned around and, you know, I just, I'm in an alley. He grabbed me by the shoulder. I turned around and I hit whoever would grab me by the shoulder. And it turned out to be him. He was a retired police chief. And, uh, it, I mean, I, I hit him so hard, he went down. He cracked his head on the pavement, too, and he was out. He was bleeding from his brain. I got jumped by, by six security. They beat the fuck out of me, threw me in an ambulance, and then threw me in. And I just, at that point, I was facing 15 years in prison. Oh, yeah. And I was like, man, I was like, if this was bad, my lawyer even looked at me. He's like, Dave, he's like, you know, or Ray, he's like, this, this isn't good. <laughs> he's like, this guy, whoever this guy is, He's got a lot of political connections. He's like, they want you to go down bad. And I'm like, fuck, man. I'm like, this is it. This, I'm like, if I catch a blessing somehow on this, I'm changing my life around. I'm like, there's no way I can keep doing this. Because there's, I mean, we've only gone over just a fraction of, like, you know, what I've gone through. And it's like, at that point, I was like, man, I just, I need something. At that time, when I went in, I didn't hang out with the gangbangers. I didn't hang out. I wasn't trying to make connections. I wasn't trying to, I, I kept to myself. There were all these classes going on. I would do anything to take any program, any class, anything to start learning, dealing with my problems inside, you know, how to operate in a normal work environment. I started taking all these classes, and I started, you know, actually putting in the work to want to be better because I was sick and tired. I was, you know, I was all saying, I'm not going to lie, I'm scary thinking about going to prison for 15 years, you know, and so I, I started doing that. I remember asking these people in there, too. I'm like, hey, I'm like, you guys want to come to this class with me? And they're like, no, nah, man, nah, that, that shit don't work, man, that don't work, we don't care about that, but it's like, they never tried, so they, they're, they're always going to be stuck in the same place, they never utilized the tools that were actually in there, Very the true. Tools, but there's still something, and they didn't want to put in that effort, and I remember putting that effort started doing good, and you know, my parents started seeing that, and I remember, like, last time I was about to go to trial, I called my dad and I was like, listen, I'm like, I've been doing this, I've been doing everything you could tell just from the way I was talking, that there's a different sparkle in your voice or something. And he's like, all right, he's like, I'm going to help you out this last time. He's like, 
But after this, she's like, you better not go back. I'm like, all right. So I'm going for my, for like a pre-trial type thing. It was like the last one right before the trial. And uh, the prosecutor, he's actually from the town that I'm in. He knows me. So he knows my reputation in that town. He wants to fucking slam me. Not to mention the guy I almost killed. He was the, the police chief for that town, you know? Jeez. So it's like, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. So I was looking to get fucked. Well, right before, right that last trial I went to, all of a sudden, he's not there. I'm in there, and I'm like, what's going on? And my lawyer's like, I, I don't know. They bring in this other lady, this little tiny, and I, I can't remember her last name, but she was an Italian lady, like Pascucci or something like that. That's not it, but it was something similar to that. And she goes up to the judge, and they like, well, what, what's the state's recommendation? She's like, well, you know, she's like, David, he, he's been bad, but he's been taking these classes. He's been, you know, gives her this whole spiel. And she's like, we want to let him go on felony probation. And the judge listened and, and did that. And I caught the biggest blessing ever. I, I, I should have been going down. My lawyer just, like, dropped his stuff. He's like, I have no idea what the hell just happened. <laughs> and I ended up getting out. I got out that same day. They, they released me a felony probation, and then, you know, I ended up, ended up having to do four years of felony probation, which I succeeded in doing, which is absolutely unheard of. A lot that probation set up to, to fail, basically, and I somehow made it through those four years, and I, I took that as a blessing, you know, and that, that was uh, 2015, 2016, around that area. I got out in 2016, so it was like that. That was a big, big eye-opener for me. Plus, I had a couple of kids at the time, too, and I was just like, my priorities all of a sudden just shifted. Yeah, it, it, it's called growing the fuck up. You know, I did a five-year probation. <laughs> I did a five-year probation. I wasn't allowed to go to Europe with leeway, so I actually, right. I, I, I absconded and I took off and and went to Europe without permission, and I had to come back and surrender. And they wanted to remand me, and they wanted to not just violate me, but make me finish another 18 months of my probation. But for some reason, because I was in treatment at the time, the judge cut me a break and gave me time served. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of showing, uh, you know, remorse and 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 showing that you're looking to 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 make the proper changes in your life that gives you the benefit of the doubt in these situations you know a lot of these guys that are going through the recidivism are going in and out of jail all the time they're not trying to work anything to improve themselves they've resigned themselves to the fact that they're just going to be street types for the rest of their lives and and it's kind of like giving up Mindset, especially when everywhere you look around is that same mindset. You really, really 
want to get out. And then when you get out, you got the cops against you, you got the politics against you, you got everything against you. It's not the people that get out of that, I mean, I commend them 110% because that's probably one of the toughest things to do. Well, the circumstance and the poverty and not being able to get out of the neighborhood kind of makes people surrender to the fuckery all the time. Exactly. It's easy. You can, you know, a lot of people, they, 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 it's easy to just go to jail. Like, once you get into jail, you, you don't have really a care in the world. I mean, you don't have bills, you don't have child support payments, you don't have, you know, any of that stuff. All you have to worry about is that you're going to survive at the same time. And that, that you, you don't have the rest of the worries. Where, once I see it up, you start realizing, like, Life is not easy. It's not easy at all. I mean, being in a criminal underbelly, too, all that stuff, that, that's just, it's almost a cop-out easy way out for everything. Whereas, like, now you're trying to make an honest buck. You're trying to earn that. You're trying to pay your bills. You're trying to do it. That's hard. It's hard to keep that income coming in. It's hard to maintain a house. It's hard to maintain a relationship and all that. So it, it, it's a big cop-out to just sit in jail. It's a, they make it that way, too. They make it easy so that, you know, that people keep coming back. Because that, that's all a business, too. You look on the on the door of the courthouse, it says business hours. And there's a line out the door of people. Each of those people are paying court. I mean, it's, it's just it's It is business. It is business. You know, it you know keeping keeping the lawyers you know well paid and everything else. The state makes money for housing you in incarceration. You know they 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 get paid by the federal government for each body that's locked up. You know it it it's a very fucked up system and so many people play right into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was selling black teas to the to the to the to the prison system basically, and the prison system is running basically free labor. So they figured out a way to legalize slavery. Oh, of course, of course, and and so many other states are doing this too. That's why, yep. you know, it you know it is a workforce. It it you know that's that's being slave paid. And the state is getting paid from the federal government to give you a cell and a cot, you know. Exactly. They get so much per day. Not to mention, you go in there, you're, you're, you're buying commissary. And every person, you know, spends 40, $40 a week on commissary. Well, that $40, you're buying a ramen noodle for $1.25 when, the, when they're getting it for, you know, five cents. Yeah, everything's marked up. Just that, just that right there, that commissary issue generates a lot of funds and income for the uh, for the for the penal system. True. You know. So where are we now, Ray? Ray? You know, give me an idea where you are now that you're not going back to this life. No, no, I'm not going back to this life. I still have a lot of my ties. I still hang out with a lot of my friends, but I don't I don't get involved and they respect that fact. Actually since I've gone sober, a lot of my brothers that are like in clubs, they're, they're sober as well. They, they, they kick themselves up and they've actually started treating things a little bit differently. And it, it's actually kind of cool to see that I've had that positive effect on people that were like so lost, like me, you know? Yeah. It's actually re really cool to see. Giving them the by example. Exactly. And it, it, it's awesome. It's like one of the greatest feelings to see that I'm able to do that. You know, and I, I wonder, like, the second I smoked pot, it's like just because my, my mom was such a drug addict, like, if that embedded in my DNA, that's what made me rage, you know? That's what made me, like, I, a normal person, maybe you didn't come from that, or had a parent that had drugs in their system when you're born and stuff like that. Like, maybe they're able to smoke pot and just walk away after that. I smoked pot, and I wanted to just 
dive off the deep end as hard as I could. You know, I wanted to trip on acid. I wanted to take mescal, and I wanted, you know, I never got into downers. I never, I loved hallucinogens like from like 18 to like 20, 24. But then from 24 to like 26, it was like cocaine, man. The second I got into that, that was like a whole new world. Mm, definitely a rage. Definitely a rage for so many guys in the bars and stuff like that. They can't pick up a drink without using that. I, it, I, that was me. It's like I never used cocaine sober. I always was. I was always drinking. It was like a vicious cycle. It's like you know, I'd be hungover from the the day before, so I'd pop an Adderall, and that would really get me going at work. Once work was done, I'd hit the bar and start drinking vodka. Vodka was just like cocaine to me. You know, after the vodka, I started getting a little drunk. I don't like being drunk. I like drinking, but I don't like being drunk. So I'd get the cocaine. Then the cocaine would sober me up. I mean, I couldn't tell you the handful of times I've been pulled over on two, three-day benders. Cops have no fucking idea how strung out I am. Because it makes you, like, almost sober, but it's hard to explain. I mean, <laughs> No, it, it keeps you going, and that's why I think a lot of guys use it, but then they don't realize the, uh, the, the, the transformation that it brings into a person, the rage, the anger. Most of the guys that are really committing serious crimes out there, especially during the times I was offending, they were definitely either cracked, or, or cracked out or cocained out, and, and a lot of the wild shit that they were doing, they couldn't do unless they were under that influence. Right. You know, I mean, dope fiends are desperate, but, but you know... I would see a lot of heroin addicts come in, you know, and the heroin addicts coming in, falling asleep, sitting there skinny and stuff. After two, three weeks, start eating a meal, maybe they start working out. I mean, I would see literal transformations. 90% of these people that were in jail are people that are addicted to drugs. They use the drugs because of the environment that they're in. You know, it's an escape. It's also around you. Everybody's doing it. It's like, it's crazy because I, I feel like instead of just incarcerating people like this, if we got them better drug treatment, if we, we figured out some way to just get them off the drugs, they would sober up and they'd be able to, you know, start maintaining their lifestyle. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But, you know, with, with, with the way the system is designed, they make more money locking you up than they do giving you treatment. They also, I mean, how does heroin come into the United States? I mean, it's not wrong here. Who has the connections big enough to allow shipments? I mean, hundreds of kilos of, of, of you know, who controls the Port Authority? The government does. You know, you got your guys in there. Who allows this stuff to come in? They, they want this stuff in because they, they profit off it. The government profits. Well, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are now the main drug dealers. Most people that have to resort to the streets are the desperate ones, and that's where they die off because of the fentanyl that's that's so rampant in the streets today because real opiates aren't in the streets. It's opioids, and it's synthetic opioids through the pharmaceutical companies. And then once you become an IV addict, it's 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 almost impossible to to quit and walk away for good. Yep, I mean I, I never did heroin. I, I did oxycotton a couple of times, and I remember just throwing up and just feeling sick. I, it wasn't my cup of tea. I like being up. I like being social. I like talking to girls. I like you know the party side of it. 
I mean, I had a, I had a girlfriend when I was uh, 19 years old. This is the closest experience to heroin I had. She wasn't a user, but her mom was. And her mom was heavily, heavily, she was a piker lady, and she was heavily using using heroin. Her husband actually was the lieutenant of the, of the local uh, county uh, police department. And uh, he actually preferred her. He had his connections get her the heroin because he preferred her being doped up at home than out in the street. So that was all fucked up. That like, you know, you got a guy who's a, who's a lieutenant for, you know, the police, and he's allowing this to happen. It's crazy. But then she, I remember, she ended up getting sober, and she was sober for about six months. And me and her, we went, me and her daughter, we went, to a, we went to a show one night. And we come back home, and uh, the house is dark. And we're like, what's going on? Her mom's supposed to be here. And we're looking around, calling her mom's name. I go to one side of the house, she goes to the other. I'm on the other side of the house, and I'm, I'm like, I just hear this, just this blood-curdling scream, and I swear to God, it haunts me to this day. And I, I sprint across the house. I go to the other other side of the house, and her mom's laying there with her pants off, sitting on the toilet with a needle in her mom, arm, and her mom just fucking overdosed because she started back up, and there was fentanyl in what she, she used for the Jeez. first time after six months. And she was dead right there. It was the first dead body I ever seen. Man, that's a tragedy that that yeah. more and more people are going through nowadays because of this uh, pandemic that's nationwide. It's disgusting. It really is. It really is. But it feeds into the system. I mean, it's, it's, it's the controlled. It's, it's almost like a controlled uh, uh, craziness. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, as as much as like we we kind of chuckle it off and stuff like that if you don't have a sense of humor about all of this chaos and trauma that's around us you lose your fucking mind you really yeah, you really do yeah listen ray i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this today man yeah, absolutely. I, I, I had a good time talking about it. I feel like, you know, a lot of people have these problems and what you're doing is great because I feel like a lot of people need to hear these stories because, it, you know, a lot of people don't understand that everybody else, there's a, there's a vast majority of Americans that are going through the same thing. Well, we're falling into the traps. We're enduring, you know, we're going through pain and challenges and, and it's so easy to fall off the path and allow you know, a, a life to, to take away our promise and hopes. You know what I mean? It, it's easy to be violent. It's easy to get high. It's easy to tune out and, and, and just suffer and succumb to your depression. Um, it, it's the fight, it, and it's, it's growing above and beyond the uh, circumstances that that you know we're born into to, to that that gives us you know the chance to have a life. Right. What was the movie? A Bronx Tale, right? Where he's like Robert De Niro looks at Kawashi doll and he's like he's like you know it, it's easy to pull a trigger, but he's like try waking up and going to work every day. He's like that's what makes you a strong man. You know, it's like when he was explaining to him not to go hang out with him, Chad's Palmer Terry's character, you know, he's like, there's a working man, that's, that's the guy, the guy who's, who's working his ass out to provide for his family, that's a strong man, not somebody who's standing behind a gun, you yeah. know, trying to be Mr. Big Shot. Just looking sharp and getting over and exactly. taking money from the hard workers, and it is the truth, man. You know, it, it took me a good 30 years to really grow up and see that. <laughs> 
and and <laughs> you know, it, and it could have been worse, man. We could you you could have been doing a fifteen year bid and never found your way out. I could have easily overdosed or or gone through my own incarceration that that could have taken the best of my years away from me too. You know, we just. We're just two lucky guys, man, that, that still yeah. have that chance with life, you know? Absolutely. And it's, it's like I, I, I think to myself, well, I have a different idea of God. For the sake of the argument, I'll call God. I think God every day, you know, that, that I, I was able to wisen up to this because now my life is so much so much more meaningful, so much more. It's just, it's just amazing. I'm happy every day instead of being depressed, chasing that next high, chasing the dragon. Well, you're a father now, too, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm a father, yes. And uh, that's, that's played a big role into it, too. You know, it's like I look at my son and I don't want to... It's, it's almost awesome, you know, my dad, you know, being the immigrant, he knew a lot, but being an immigrant, he didn't understand American lifestyle, so there's a lot of things that were never explained to me as a kid. I'd ask him, he'd be like, don't do that. I'd be like, why? He'd be like, because I said so. Well, that's in my mind, I'm wondering, well, why the fuck can't I do it? So I go do it, find out, and then you find out the hard way. Yeah. So I'm able to explain that to my son now when he gets older. Hey, don't do that. I'd be like, look, this is why, you know, that I can explain and have him understand so he can make it up in his own mind instead of just wondering. Well, yeah, the whole dynamic changes. You could show him the good yep. and the bad, and you could give him the proper guidance, and, and you can teach him through your own life lessons. That way he doesn't right. have to make the same mistakes. Right. I mean, I, 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 didn't, I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I, had, I had a sister, and uh, I don't know how we are on time, but I'm going to tell this little, little one real quick. I had a sister, and I have an older brother who I, I've never met. He was in the car with me. The state wouldn't let my parents adopt all three of us, so uh. me and my brother that I live with went with them, and then he went somewhere else. So after that, I didn't see him. But he was older than me, and he got to see everything, and he got really fucked up because... You know, he, he was there when my parents were using, my dad's hanging out with these guys, my mom's, you know, turning tricks in the bedroom. And my mom would, my parents would be gone. I had a sister who was born, and uh, my, my mom was never there. So he's like five, six years old, and he's trying to, like, make her a bottle on the stove and stuff. And uh, he ended up burning the house down. He was able to get out. My sister died in the boat. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. So it's like, that's... That's, yeah, that's, that's not the lifestyle I want my kids to be able to grow up. Well, you know? you know, hopefully, you know, when he's old enough, you could kind of tell him these stories like horror stories, scary stories right. to kind of keep him on the path of straight and narrow because God only knows what today's children are going to inherit in this world. It's, Do you know I what mean, I mean? It's, our world's getting more, more and more. I mean, it's getting more loose, you know. So like, movies aren't like what they used to be. The TV shows aren't like Home Improvement and Family Matters and step by step like I grew up watching. You know, it's all sex, drugs, and rock and roll now, and it's only been getting worse. I mean, the amount of things I see just on Facebook alone that has that kids have access to this and what people are posting and stuff. Not that I'm a poser or anything. Say whatever you want, but they're seeing things that are really twisted and, and you know it's. I, I just, I don't, I don't understand it. The world's kind of turning into a darker place. A much darker place, man. It definitely is. Yep. It's, it's a perspective that, you know, I, I, you know, I don't even have the words for it to sometimes see it. I mean, we're adults. So we could kind of look at it, understand it. And right. We could almost be like, oh, we've been there. We've done that. Ha, ha, ha. Right. But, <laughs> but for little kids, they, you know, they really don't understand it. And, and too much is available to them 
that, you know, they need to be watched like, you know, like a hawk. You know, there's just no other way to do it. We have to do that because your your childhood's ruined. We shouldn't have to stand over a kid every every 24 hours a day saying yes and no. You should be able to go outside without worrying about getting kidnapped. You should be able to, like, I I grew up living outside. You know, I grew up, like, in, in, in woods building BMX trails. And, you know, it's like going to hardcore shows by myself, walking home from school, stuff like that. It's like kids are terrified to do this stuff nowadays. Yeah, very true, man. And, and, and like, I, I wonder what they're going to adapt and, and, and have in constructive uh, means to, to, to do, you know, to, for, for recreation and for education and for work. It's, it, it's such a question mark today, and, and uh, it deeply concerns me. You know, it really does. I, I, I think a lot of it's fueled by the media, too. I think they're, like, preparing us. I, I, I hate to see what the next generation is going to be, but, I mean, with all the fear they instill into people, and people are absorbing this, and, you know, people are scared to be outside of their houses. When I was a kid, everybody was outside. Nowadays, I don't see anybody outside, and if you're outside, you're the odd man out. Yeah, and, and the only thing you could do is try to be a strong influence and not turn them into snowflakes. You know what all I mean? Right. They need to be prepared for what's coming, man. Well, again, Ray, thank you so much for your time today, man. My love and respect to you. I would love to come back on you. Let me know. I've got plenty more to share, so whenever you have time, just let me know. I bet you do. We'll have to do a Strictly OC show one day, man. Right, I'd be completely, I'd, I'd be completely, that's a whole other side, I got stories up the ass for that, it was just like a general summary, but I, I can get into... Well, I get a kick out of your Midwest it. accent, it, it's, it's <laughs> such a Chicago accent, I'm I'm waiting for you to tell me how much you're a big fan of the Bears, you know? No, see, I'm not a Bears fan, I grew up in Chicago, I'm a White Sox fan, because I grew up on the South Side, but I've always been a Packer fan. There you so go. That's like it. <laughs> So it's crazy, but yeah, you got your accent too, so it's nuts. <laughs> I know, and I'm partially deaf too, so I can only imagine what I sound like to some people, man. <laughs> you got that straight New York accent. I know, great. I know. All right, my man, I'll talk to you soon. You take care. Yeah, you too, brother. Thank you. We'll be right back. So there you have it. That's our interview for episode eight from Ray in the Midwest. What do you think, girl? You know, I'm very happy that he found a family because not a lot of people have a second chance like that. No, especially being abandoned in a car and That's tough. Three, four kids and the 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 only girl of the family succumbs to a fire, an accidental fire from the oldest child trying to make up for the parents irresponsibility due to addiction it's such a tragic story that you know despite what he went through growing up you know that's kind of like the rite of passage for most boys and the challenges for life you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. you know most boys have to fight their way through adolescence into young adulthood you know so many kids go right to alcohol as the first gateway drug, not just the prevalency of marijuana nowadays. But I used to laugh at that until I became an addict. But these two 
substances are truly gateway drugs. These are the first drugs kids go to. I don't think a kid normally just goes to the medicine cabinet and puts one of grandma's pain meds in their system or something like that, even though that is what's happening today, too. Yeah, I you know? agree. It's, it, 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 it's very trippy. And uh, it's definitely our longest episode to date because we're not breaking this into two parts like we did with um, Pepper, you know. And what I'm expecting to do with this future interview with Danny Diablo. So you guys got the bonus round this week. Bonus you got bonus. yourself a little extra. How about that? <laughs> you know. So uh, tonight's episode, of course, is sponsored by GNL All Stars and Sound War Studios, the makers of the 45 Project EP series. There's going to be a new artist coming. Stay tuned. I'm not going to give up the news just yet. Can you tell me? I can tell you after <laughs> we uh, press stop. But uh, there's a new uh, release coming in the works. We were talking about it before, me and Laz Pena. Uh, volatile Skateboards, the makers of the incredible, one and only, super old school boat board to expire design. Volatile Skateboards, search engine that and go check it out. And Upstate Records. They are not only one of the best record labels in the New York State area, covering so many great bands from this state, but one of the only record labels I've ever, ever been happy with. How about that? How about that? Because most of you record labels suck. Oh, Either you're, you're thieves or you're just a mail-order, perpetrating, fraud, wannabe fucking record label, but Upstate Records is legit. Mario Cangemi and his beautiful better half, Kim, they are the epitome of what a grassroots DIY record label is all about. So thank you so much for your time today. This is Eddie Leeway signing off, and... Christine. Say goodnight, everybody. Good night. Good night.